Automation is awesome. You build your intricate scripts and configuration files, you deploy out your infrastructure and applications, and then you celebrate because your job here is done, right? Except there's got to be a morning after, a morning where business requirements have changed, your infrastructure isn't behaving the way you expect, and there's a new version of the application to be deployed. Automation is the job that's never done. How do you do it right each time, every time? Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, a frank discussion of what happens when cloud stops being polite and starts getting real. This is Episode 3, and I'm your host, Ned Bellavance, Ned1313 on the Twitters. Joining me today is Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN. Welcome to the show, Rob. So, Ned, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, so I brought you on the show because I really wanted to talk to your experiences with maybe a little more on the private cloud side of things. Um, you know, we've been focusing a little bit on Azure and AWS, but I know you've mm-hmm. got a lot of experience with OpenStack and, and, and some of the other private cloud type stuff. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and sort of what was the, the plan behind OpenStack and private cloud and, and automation? Wow, uh, there's, there's so much. I mean, open cloud, open stack in a lot of ways was this uh, crystallizing event, I think, for what we were, what we were trying to accomplish because it was this, this first open software everybody was very excited about. We got a ton of use, um, but it was, you know, it was, it was really designed in a very different way. So, Ah, and then, and then, if we have time, we, I'd love to talk about the other side of that, which is day two of open running open of of an OpenStack cloud as a community event, sure. which I spent a lot of time doing in the DefCore work. But yeah, so let me let me start give give you a little bit of background on um, history of of where we were with with OpenStack, and actually that leads ultimately into what what I do day to day with uh, my company RackN. Uh, back in the early days of OpenStack, my team at Dell um, had already done a ton of cloud and big data sort of deployments. We were in this hi- hyperscale cloud server group, and we, our job was to make help make software for those uh, data centers and for that servers. So we were doing like Eucalyptus and Hadoop, early days in Teradata, um, Joint Cloud. We actually... Uh, were, were when they first tried to make Azure, believe it or not, a private thing back in 2010. Wow. Um, but there was there was actually an idea to have an on-premises or a, a private Azure. You only needed 30 racks of servers. Only. <laughs> only. That was the smallest footprint. Um, you can see how well that sold. <laughs> but uh, the, the idea, that when OpenStack showed up, we were really excited because uh, it was open, which meant that we could contribute back, we could fix things, we could take our operational experience. So our our team's uh, mandate was to be able to ship a cloud from the factory. Mm, okay. Which comes sort of to your day one, day two type of story, right? Our idea was, naive idea, was that you would be able to design a cloud, put it on this, install it, get everything working pristinely, put it in a container, ship it, your you know, customer would unbox it, plug in power, plug in a network, and the lights would whir and ice cream would come out of the other side, right? Rainbows. That sounds delicious to me. A little bit of bacon. It's, it was absolutely delicious. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and, and it utterly impractical because 
what we found. Just, and this is not even day day. This is day zero to day right. one, if you want to think about it. And there were a couple of things that were really problematic. One of them was that our customers um, did care about how servers were named and their IP ranges and the VLAN tagging and the, all that. All that stuff matters when you're doing physical on-premises infrastructure. There's you know all of the the constraints that Amazon or Google or Microsoft put on you don't exist. It's all different. It's heterogeneous, right. and it's not wrong. Heterogeneous. This is this is the big aha moment because you you know I'm you're big cloud architect. I'm going to tell everybody I know the right way to build my cloud. <laughs> right. And and the reality is there's there's everybody's got reason, you know, sometimes there's there's you know truly technical debt and there's bad stuff, but you you have to do the bad stuff the way it is because that's it's very hard to change. And then there's a lot of right decisions that people make for good reasons that are different than what you think. Um which is that at the end of the day, that's the moral to me on day day two challenges and we'll we'll talk I'm going to get there. Telling my story slow. (laughs) Got to build it up. Um, I got to build it up a little bit. But so, so the idea is that what we ship, we ship these pre-configured systems and one, the customer site was different than what they thought it was. Mm. They hadn't talked to the network team. They had something, some wrinkle that mattered to us that they thought was unimportant. So we always ended up reinstalling every, every time on site anyway. Um, And then, so that was, that was part one of the problem. Part two of the problem was uh, OpenStax release cycles were every six months, which at the time doesn't sound like that scary fast right. compared to Kubernetes today and some other platforms. But, oh, my God, at the time, it was stunningly hard. So by the time servers got shipped and installed, we had a change to the operating system, to OpenStack, to uh, the BIOS in the system, or even to our own automation and scripts. And so... That you know, you waited two weeks or a month, and the whole system that you shipped was now broken, wrong. Something had to be fixed. Sure. Um, and what we so that that's sort of where we got these deep battle scars. What we realized is that if we couldn't dynamically build everything on site at, in the moment, we couldn't actually keep up. Um, and then we had a second problem, which is where we get into day two where the sales cycles for OpenStack were were impinged by its own release cycle. So if it took you six months to decide I wanted to get OpenStack, then by the time you got that one installed, there was a new release on the horizon. Um, and people would be like, well, wait, a, I, I want, I'm not going to start my install because I want the new release. And there right. was no upgrade. There was no upgrade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we ended up with a lot of problems. So that was sort of the problem space. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting because I can draw a lot of parallels to current day deployments that Azure and AWS are trying now. So, I mean, they're trying to make this move into the private data center with Azure Stack and AWS Outposts, right? Mm-hmm. And Azure Stack was the first out of the gate, and they immediately ran into the same wall that you're talking about. We are shipping this thing into your data center, so now we're beholden to the standards that you have for your data center. We can't be the overlords that say this is how everything has to be named and designed and networked. Um, they, tr- you know, they they do try to set a moat between Azure Stack and the rest of the environment, but still, there's stuff that bleeds over, especially networking. And so that's been one of the key challenges is adapting to the networking and the PKI that exist for that for that client. And the other thing that they've been stumbling over uh, is very similar in the updates issue. 
there's an update for Azure Stack every month or so. And so the unit that ships from the uh, from the vendor is going to have probably code that's two or three months old. So the first thing you have to do is reinstall Azure Stack when it gets there. Mm. Oh, and of course, the customer doesn't know their actual environment. So all the networking stuff that they put in the check in the uh, checklist, that is probably going to be wrong. Yeah. Uh, and and then the same thing is true with a firmware patch or right vendor drift on those pieces. Um, most people don't think of servers as discrete components. We specialize in the physical layer, so we do. RAID cards are different than BIOS, which is different than <laughs> NIC firmware, which is um, – and you can get a NIC firmware patch that breaks your um, uh, network bindings. Right. And uh, open those are real, and you can't gloss over. And those are real issues. Um, right. Because you can't not patch either. Well, sorry. Well, most people can. don't patch. <laughs> you do, that's no. the way most data centers are, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's too expensive to patch, so they don't. But, and then, then, then you can't upgrade your operating systems. And then you get this cascading thing of all sorts of stuff that you don't, you don't mess with. Um, right. And yeah. was one of the challenges around that, um, I mean, you, you were, deploying on Dell hardware. So you, at least you had some of a standard, but I mean, OpenStack, no, you weren't. So Can I laugh out loud? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. So really, uh, I guess one of the difficult things with that is that um, OpenStack could be deployed on any hardware. So now you had to deal with the vagaries of multi multiple different vendors, different versions of that vendor's hardware. Uh, how do you kind of Make sure you got the right patches and everything applied. That's that's not an insignificant problem. <laughs> it's not. There's two dirty secrets, and I'll tell you what what, what we do. Um, I'll tell the secrets. One of them is is that um, yeah, the, I mean the the big vendors do a lot of work on their systems to make them consistent. But when we would get a rack of twenty servers shipped to a customer, there'd be BIOS variations and and equipment variations even in that one rack. Wow. Um, so you you can't count on on homogeneity, even in small orders, you, you have to build heterogeneity into your designs. That was, that was one of our core lessons, right? We, we had to fix. Um, and then even OpenStack, it's not standard OS. Um, OpenStack for a long time required a custom kernel and specialized drivers for uh, virtualization and things like that. Right. So like Red Hat was shipping a version of Red Hat that was for OpenStack only hmm. um, because it had slightly different needs than the standard. It had the standard release cycles hadn't caught up to things that were needed in OpenStack. The, the whole the whole model of distributing software, the timeframes that we have, are gone. So people listening to this, when you're thinking about day two, this isn't just oh I need to patch. The the whole way that the the pace at which we deliver things and the idea that you can wait for a app get installed or a yum update to get the right repos. Those aren't happening fast enough. You can't count on that as a pattern. Um, and immut uh, we're really excited about immutable deployments. It's probably a whole other uh, topic yeah. where you live reinstall the operating system or you live boot and re like we've been building tech for that on hardware um, and taking boot times down to minutes, which is is going to be the moral of some of the story. Um, but here's here's what we did. Um, so we looked at the OpenStack problem, which to came back to um, OpenStack wasn't the problem. And, and granted, OpenStack has plenty of architectural things that I would love to see fixed mm -hmm. or changed. But the problem that we had was there was no automation at the physical layer. 
that the, the technical debt, the foundational pieces that we were building on top of, like, like you said, were too, were, were too inconsistently managed. And so the, the problem that we, we solve, what we're doing at this open source project called Digital Rebar, and then Racken builds production stuff on top of it for enterprises. Um, what we do is we provide abstractions that allow you to have a consistent way to automate the hardware. Um, and you could do other things on top of it. For us, it's hardware focused. Um, a consistent platform to build on top of. And once you've gotten that abstracted and consistent, then you can start writing uh, automation that leverages a, a consistent abstraction at the hardware layer. Um, and then that then makes it really easy. Like installing Kubernetes on hardware with an abstraction like that is a minutes long process um, and consistent, you know, and then upgrading becomes really consistent because now you can say, all right, I, I know what, you know, I have ways to talk to what the systems look like and I know what, what to talk to to patch. Um, and we should probably talk about like Chef, Puppet, Ansible, some of the challenges Terraform on, on where state lives from that perspective. Yeah, so why don't we um, move the conversation into the reality of today and and the issues with that day two management of your infrastructure? Yeah. Um, I really like the idea of a hardware uh, abstraction, but of course, to make a simple interface for those configuration managers to use, it probably requires a pretty complex setup on the back end to talk all, to all these different mm -hmm. hardware manufacturers and and. I know they don't necessarily standardize amongst each other how you talk to a RAID card or update a BIOS or any of that. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, um, and when I, I should be very clear, when I say hardware abstraction, I don't mean like virtualizing the hardware. Right. That's a different thing. Um, what I'm actually talking about is, or is exactly what you're saying. How do you treat RAID cards in a, in a, in a unique, each RAID card uniquely or in each RAID configuration uniquely, but, but write automation on top of that that assumes that it's been done correctly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the answer for that for us has been composability um, and workflows and, and loose coupling of these pieces. So the way that we've approached day two operations is we go for desired state. And, and so, <laughs> so the idea here is that I want to get my system, I define what I want my system to be at the end. Right. Uh, my operating system installed, my SSH keys would be a minimum, but it might be, I need Docker and I need these patches run. I need these, this RAID configuration set up and this VLAN attached. Um, and so that's your, your target state. And then what, what we, what we do is we build a workflow backwards from that state that does all that work. But each piece of that workflow, um, usually can be reused. And then data that's collected in each stage feeds back into the profiles and information you've collected for the machine. So the next stage down can ask, what's been done on this machine? What's its profile? What do we know about it? And then it sort of builds up uh, this you know, cumulative data about the system live as it builds the system. So there's a tight feedback loop. You don't have to know anything in advance. You don't have to make a decision in advance. The system is inspects inspects collects data, feeds it back into the system, updates the server, and then makes subsequent decisions. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to take a breath because that sounds, that sounds yeah. really complex, but you asked, let me be very specific. So you asked about RAID cards and different vendors' RAID cards. So what that lets you do is I have a generic workflow that builds um, 
a Kubernetes um, worker, uh, Kubernetes node. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of stages that install Docker, install Kubernetes, join it to the cluster, right? That, all that stuff is pretty standard, whether you're working in a cloud or you're working on physical, once you've gotten the system built right. The changes for the physical RAID card end up being just one stage in that workflow. And so if you so if you design the system so you can pull out that stage, then what happens is that you can literally make make a choice for the system on your site without impacting everybody else. And I feel like I'm being I'm, I'm still being too vague. <laughs> so I, I build a worker node install workflow. Sure. In that workflow, by default, it doesn't care about the storage at all. So I can test test the heck out of it. Uh, day, day two upgrades. You know, multiple operating systems, Docker, CNI, whatever I want to do. And then I can come back to that workflow when I'm on a premises with a individual customer who has HP's servers, which have different RAID cards than Dell servers do. And I can put in the stage that's appropriate for HP servers, or even better, I can detect it and inject it automatically and then make decisions on premises for that one thing. But the way that that works is that since that stage is just injected on premises based on what that configuration is, it doesn't actually impact all the other stages that are downstream from it. So does that, does that sort of make sense? It's, it's a different, it's a little bit, it's like, it's like roles in a playbook, but they're all disconnected. So you can drop in roles that you don't have to build a playbook. You just pick the pieces you need for your site and then let the system figure out how to piece them all together. Right, right. It's it's uh, modular to a certain degree, but you still have some overarching orchestrator that's snapping those modules in and then making sure that the information that comes out of one module flows into the next. Correct. That's that that the design is the design allows you to accumulate that data or pre-populate it. You know, of course you can do that. Right. Um but that but that has been critical from a day 2 perspective because what you don't want to do in day 2 thinking because right, a lot of what we did was how do we make OpenStack upgradable? That's sort of the genesis of a lot of what we do. Mm. Not that we actually even install OpenStack. But, uh, <laughs> right. The, but, but the idea here is that if I'm going to make something upgradable, the information about the state of the system has to be stored in the, in the system. I can't count on an Ansible playbook with an inventory file to be up to date. I have to be able to accumulate information as that system is changing. Um, and if I'm doing like a live upgrade, every time a machine is being patched or upgraded or changed or walked through that blue green cycle, I have to have a live database sort of saying, okay, this machine's been changed. Here's its new information. Here's its new version. Let it run through a workflow. And then I have to know the workflow completes. So there's a sequential the balance of the sequential operation and parallel operation that, that's a little tricky. Right. Yeah. When I think about that, the, the holding of state, right? When you do that initial deployment of the infrastructure, uh, at your day one deployment, you can be relatively certain that the stuff that you put in your scripts and config files is what actually gets deployed. But then moving forward, there's the possibility that that state drifts away from the real world. So how do you keep the state of what you think your environment looks like in line with the reality of how that actual, uh, how those actual resources are truly configured. Right. 
And this, this to me, and there's, there's a, a balance because we, we chef and puppet, right. We're really good tools that would every 20 minutes force conformance. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and that was problematic uh, for us. And for a lot of people, because what would happen is if you made a configuration change, the system could bounce back. Um, and it required very tight definitions and coupling of what the server was. So you had this sort of, un, you know, uh, behind the scenes behavior, which we didn't like either. So you sort of, now you're, 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 you're stuck between two pieces. Uh, what you were saying, you know, if I predefine a, an inventory file that has my whole system configuration, it works the moment I run it and then it's wrong. Um, <laughs> and then if I, just let my system continually enforce configuration, then I have side effects that I don't want. And I have, it's very hard to coordinate activities across a fleet of servers because each one is like fighting against the other ones. Those are the two challenges that we saw. We actually compromised with something in the middle. Okay. Um, so what, what we, and, and part of it's easy because to run a data center, you have to have a service in the data center. Um, it's not like um, Terraform or Ansible where you have a desktop tool that you run, it does stuff, and then it stops. Mm -hmm. In those cases, you have state drift, which is really bad. Um, what what we have to be able to do to provision servers is you have to have a service that's running all the time that provides Pixie and HTTP and things like that. But you don't want it to be running so often like Chef and Puppet where you're conforming, where you're forcing conformance. So since we have a service, when actions are taken during a workflow, everything that happens in that workflow is sent back to the server and live logged. So this, the workflow can accumulate configuration settings and you know uh, inventory and things that are happening on that server. But when it's done, we don't uh, force reinforcement. We don't we don't keep reinforcing. So the 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 balance that we had is that when you run the automation, it it will go through the process. Uh, declaratively, finish collecting data. You'll get live logging. It's, that's one of the, one of the things that's really important to me in any ops environment, especially one that you want ongoing. Is that when something breaks, you stop, and when something's working, you get live feeds back that it's going. There's no black magic. There's no black box. Right. Um, but then what happens is you store all that data in a service running in the data center, and so if you change something, you can pick up and keep going. Um, the hard thing with hardware is that you actually have to survive boots and you have to have data that, that actually forces across a multi-boot process, um, works in different API contain, you know, works in different APIs and coordinates different API actions. Um, there's no one, like pr one protocol or one uh, API that you, you use to manage a data center. It's actually a collection of multiple APIs, right. uh, you know, like DHCP and Pixie and LDAP and IP, uh, IP, IPAM managers and DNS. Um, it's just, right, you have to do, you have to balance all those things and you have to balance them in a, in a reasonable order to bring up a server. Most people are so used to cloud. We don't think about that. Um, right. In, in data centers, there's all, you, you actually have to do all these, all the service work services. I don't know how you want to say it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like uh, in the public cloud, somebody is doing all that work. It's just been abstracted away from you. So you don't have to worry about it. But if you are running your own private cloud, now all that stuff is your problem. Um, day one and day two. It's well, this is, this is what people don't, this is one of the big ahas to me um, in, in our, in our on-premises experience. There is no such thing as a greenfield data center. Um, 
even even if you show up at a completely new data center with shiny new servers and boxes, there are constraints in that environment that you have to factor in. But most data centers that you deploy into, even Azure, right? Your Azure example is a good one. You're going into a real into an existing data center. They have rules and stat, you know, IP ranges. They have switches. They have routing. They have, you know, power requirements. There is no greenfield on-premises data center. There is only brownfield, mm-hmm. meaning there's all, you know everybody has some history that you have to accommodate. Right. It, um, it might be day one for you, but it's day two for everybody else. Right. And so this, this is this is a, an important point. So when and and if you're a software vendor and you're showing up at a customer's on-premises data center, your yeah your day one is their day is their day one hundred. Right. Right. And if you can't, and most of the customers we talk to selling software into a data center are like, just let the ops team, you know, give me servers that are already set up to level X and, you know, we'll install on top of it. And then there's drift and everybody gets upset, um, which is that's, that's status quo. We think we can do better. Of course, um, we think actually be more specific. We think we have to do better mm-hmm. if, if, because uh, on-premises infrastructure is way too expensive to operate. It's not expensive to buy, um, but it's very expensive to operate. And so if we can't do better on these day two questions, which is where IT really falls down, it's like, give me a server. Six months later, one shows up. That's not acceptable. Right. Um, and it's even worse in a lot of cases, right? People we talk to, it's it, they have a server. They want to repurpose it. That still takes months. Um, and those those processes can't be months processes. Um, they have to be minutes processes. Right. And I think that's that's a problem that a lot of the vendors have tried to uh, solve. Like the OEMs, like HP and and Dell, have tried to solve on their own with their own tech. Um, but that tech generally only works with their one product set. It doesn't talk to any other vendor's product set. So unless you've gone all in on one, that's problematic. And uh, some of it's not very good, to be honest, because a lot of them are <laughs> hardware companies. They're not software companies, and, and, and they're not great at writing really good software that thinks through things. Well, the, the problem, and this is to me the day, the day two issue, or one of them, is for, for these vendors, they, they care about getting their hardware to work. But when you, when you bring machines up, even VMs, you have to connect those into the fabric of the data center, right? You have to get IP addresses that are in some reasonable, right? You, you have to get IP addresses that fit in the range. You have to get things in your name server. You have to add it into your, your auth infrastructure. You have to get things patched. Every operate, every company might have their own repos or their own patch standards. They, right. There's, you know, everything has to be factored into all this stuff. And so you can't just show up and say, oh, I can patch your BIOS or, oh, I can boot your operating system. You actually have to, to run a data center and run it efficiently, you have to cross all of these systems every single time you provision an operating system. Um, Every time you're really, every time you're now with Immutable, every time I'm bringing an app up, you know, I might be reinstalling everything in my environment. My opera, you know, every server immutable. If I'm doing immutable boots, I'm going to take CI/CD pipeline, and, and people should be doing this or trying to CI/CD pipeline my app, integrate it into my full operating system install, test all that stuff, and then push the image of that into my data center, whether it's virtualized, containerized, or on the metal. What you're now doing is that that whole thing is an artifact. It's a single unit. That's the best way 
and it's fastest to actually control these day two operations. But that means when that new image is pushed through your data center on a daily or weekly basis, you have to rejoin that image into everything else you've done. You have to attach it to all these different systems. And this, this is what's funny. We thought we were building a provisioning system. What we were really building was a workflow integration engine hmm. because of this, because we learned this problem. Right. Um, and that's where, to me, where things like, you know, OpenStack or Kubernetes, are, they're, they, they haven't realized that the operational side of their platforms require you to do all this work. In cloud, you don't have to do it. Yay. Um, <laughs> that's why cloud's great. But I don't think that means it's too hard for, for normal operators to do it. I just don't think people have built the tools uh, that think through the problem as a integrated operations environment problem. They think of it as, I'm going to sell you a Nutanix infrastructure, put it in a, its own rack, and, and try and not connect it to anything else. Yeah, and they have their own reasons and business drivers for, for doing that. And I, I certainly don't fault them for wanting to sell, you know, hardware since that's that's how they make money but it would be really nice it's, it's also, it makes the problem go away this is this is the reason why those things are popular and i i uh, you know it, they're great you can buy that one thing and if you're locked you know, just doing that one thing and you're homogeneous that's fantastic but what happens if you don't like that vendor anymore or they raise their prices or they go out of business or something else you're you're you know, now you've now you've got silos and that's what enterprises look like Right. Uh, one of the things that you brought up earlier was the idea of composable infrastructure. And I know that's kind of a term that HPE tried to own a little bit with their synergy yeah. platform. And then more recently, Dell has come out with their new sort of blade system that's composable. Uh, and they have their own definitions. But like when you say composable infrastructure, what do you have in mind? And, and how does that lend itself to improving this, this day two operational process issue? Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I think I was at ITX Interop last year, tearing tearing down the this idea of of uh, basically you buy a big box with a whole bunch of commodities and then dynamically rewire it into being, you know, the ser servers on the spot. It's sort of the way that HP's composable infrastructure was was pitched. It's sort of like physically uh, you know, building machines out of parts inside dynamically inside of a box, like rewiring PCI buses. Right. Um, yeah. When, when I, I'm a software person um, or a hardware, a data center hardware guy, you would like, no, it's not, <laughs> uh, we're, we're software, we're building software. So composable for us means that the software stack that you're working, you're building your automation on is built up in pieces. Um, and so, that's that's where we're talking. In some ways, it's very similar. It's like, oh, I need to configure my RAID card. Let me drop in a part that does the RAID configuration. I need to do my firmware. Let me drop in a piece that does my firmware configuration. Um, and so, for what we what we are doing, and what I think is the right thing to do, is is it's a modularity piece. But modularity is is a little bit different. Um, composable means you have all the pieces you need, and then you you connect them together. That's I guess it's modular. Um, but one of the things that we, we really like to be able to do is you can leave parts out. Right. Especially for simpler environments. So if you're building a workflow and you're just trying to install Kubernetes, um, then you just you know, get a VM and install Kubernetes. That You should be able to do that as a composable unit without having to 
have all the pieces in front of it. And, and a lot of software does do pretty well with composability. It gets really, really tricky when it comes down to state and change and, and storing state. And if you mix your state information into your automation information, then you can break all this stuff. Um, I'll pick on Terraform a little bit, which is actually a really nice tool, but the way they store state is very mixed into the way those, those plan files work. And so you can get into a very strange place where the state of your system and the automation don't match anymore and it just falls apart. Um, yeah, I feel, and so I feel like I could do a whole show just on Terraform day two, because <laughs> it's, it's a tool that I know pretty well. And I've already seen sort of the wrinkles, you know, day one, I got everything deployed out in day two. How do I upgrade that when somebody went in and manually made a change somewhere? And how do I get that state file to reflect uh, what's the reality in, in the infrastructure it's managing? That's, it's a pretty significant challenge. And I, they haven't really addressed it yet. It's it, well. It's a really hard problem because it's it's not Terraform's not designed with a database. It's not designed to synchronize its data live into the system. It's designed to be run when you push a change and then it reconciles it. Yet we we had we we did a really nice integration with Terraform and Digital Rebar where you could basically write to any object, and we were all excited and patting ourselves on the back. Yeah, this is awesome. But then we would make a change in the Terraform plan and rerun it, and then it would reassert data into the database that had changed live in the data center. And we started realizing that there was going to be a tug of war between the source of truth problems and mm. source of truth problems are, are a really big deal, especially in day two operations. I mean, that's, there's no bigger problem than who owns what part of the data. And so you have to design a system that can delegate to a source of truth, like an IP allocation manager or a configuration manager, management database when it needs to. Um, we're not. Uh, example for us is DHCP. We, you know, if you use our integrated DHCP, you get some benefits. But a lot of data centers, they, they don't own, you know, our, the, the one team doesn't own DHCP, the other the networking team owns it. And so you, you don't get that choice. You have to work with what somebody has. Um, that's a, that's a good example of a source of truth uh, problem where one group owns one piece of information, but it's essential to completing your work. Right. And so you can't make an arbitrary decision. You have to delegate it. And, da and data centers have distributed source of truth. It's sort of a sad, not a sad reality, it's just the way tools are. Yeah. Uh, we should just all move to IPv6 and then everybody can have an address. You don't have to worry about it, right? <laughs> Oh, that solves all the problems. <laughs> Doesn't it? <though? laughs> yeah, it's just going to that that and and moving to UEFI BIOS. Um, those two things together are going to make data centers just flawlessly executing machines. Yeah, yeah, that that didn't happen. My tongue cannot move that far into my cheek without uh, <laughs> without pain. All right, so I, we're kind of coming up on 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 the end of this, but I, I'd love to have you on again, and we can dig deeper into the whole you know, shared state source of truth sort of thing. If you wanted to, uh, you know, what would be three key takeaways for uh, listeners today that they, they should you know, mull over uh, over the next couple of days? Uh, you know, complexity is, is hard. Uh, we sort of talked around this, but, you know, you need to find ways to eliminate complexity in, in your infrastructure that that's going to make everything else better. Um, it's because there's an exponential cost on that. Um, I, I think that accepting heterogeneity is another one, um, which might sound contrary to complexity, except complexity, but 
you know, if you don't build heterogeneity into your designs, then you're, you're not future proofing. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you assume homogeneity, that's a problem. You are like, Rob, you just gave me conflicting goals. I'm like, sure did. <laughs> that's the way life oh, that's is. That's reality. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I really think people, uh, should be looking very hard into CICD infrastructures and pushing them all the way into what they're doing. So mutability and, and live deploys and things like that, um, sound sound like a lot of work if uh and they are at first but um this whole idea that i'm treating a a you know some the the biggest footprint i can make into an art a single artifact um actually has a lot more benefits uh to day two operations than people um are giving you know it's, it's scary at first and and but i'm we're really seeing dramatic improvements in the robust and robustness and resilience data center operations from immutable CICD artifacts. All right. Those are, those are great tips. Um, if people want to know more about you, what you're up to, where can they follow you? Uh, where should they go? Sure. Uh, so racken.com uh, of course is, is the company rebar.digital. If you're interested in sort of banging around with the open source project, um, which is what we, we encourage people to do if they want to try this physical stuff that we've been talking around. Uh, on Twitter, I am Zeichel, Z-E-H-I-C-L-E. -E. Um, love to interact with people, get into fights and disputes and talk <laughs> about, about big issues on, on Twitter. Um, oh, and then, of course, uh, I am co-host of uh, a podcast that um, called The Latest Shiny, L-8-I-S-T-S-H-9-Y. I'm elite. <laughs> in this where uh we've been exploring devops edge topics uh open source it's sort of fun we 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 uh we we have a good time talking to some really smart people yeah i i subscribe and i enjoy it a lot so i definitely recommend listeners uh go check that out we'll include a link in the show notes of course uh so rob thank you so much for appearing on the podcast i really appreciate it my pleasure ned thank you for having me Thanks to Rob for appearing on Day 2 Cloud, and thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe and let me know on Twitter. If you have suggestions for future shows, I'd love to hear them. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.